Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7 a.m. Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm really glad that we get to hear from Angel Pijangs, who is going to share the first pages of her debut novel, The Light of Eternal Spring, which was just released in April. Good morning, Angel. Thank you so much for being on the show. Good morning, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, she's she's calling in, zooming in from Canada, uh, but luckily we are on the same time zone, I think, right? Toronto? Yes, we are. Yes, yes. So Angel Zhang was born in Northeast China and raised in China, England, Canada, and the United States. She was educated in the joint BAMA of International Affairs Program at Columbia University, and she's also a painter and an internationally exhibited fine art photographer, which I'm also really excited about. I love having artists on here as well. And Angel now lives in a secret garden near Toronto, um, so maybe we'll be able to find out more about the secret garden too. Okay. Angel, can you give us an overview of your first pages so that we have a little context for what we're going to hear from you? Yes. Okay. The novel is called The Light of Eternal Spring, and it is about a photographer who falls into photos and her quest to reconcile with her dead mother. It's magical realism. Um, and the first pages begin with her finding out about her mother's death. Great, great. And um, so everyone, the link to the pages um, is in the podcast notes. And there's also a link to where you can buy the book. Um, because it was released in Canada, um, we're not going to be able to get it on the our normal bookshop page. But I do recommend once you hear these pages, I think I think you'll love it and want to chase the book down. Okay, Angel, go ahead and let's hear the early pages. Okay. My mother died of a broken heart, or so the letter said. I was standing before a vegetable stall in Manhattan's Chinatown, next to eight for a dollar garlic and cabbage by the pound. The old Manchu woman who was translating spoke a broken, heavily accented English. She looked up from her lawn chair and I stiffened under her gaze. I honestly didn't know how to feel. Death was an abstract thing for me. I had never been to a funeral. I choked out the words. What else does it say? Just that your mother dead. The old woman thrust the letter back at me and circled two fingers in the air to ward off evil. She turned to a customer who was choosing peppers. I glanced at the sun directly overhead, the sky a painful blue unmarred by clouds, then down on the pavement at my translator's feet, as cracked as her heels in their torn embroidered sandals. Dazed, I lifted my camera from where I hung on a strap of my hip and took a photograph of her feet and the pavement laid with scars. I fumbled with my purse and removed my wallet, almost dropping it on the ground. I offered her a $10 bill for translating the letter, even though she had volunteered to do it for free, a favor because she recognized a fellow Manchu in the shape of my face. No, her hand clamped on my wrist. I give bad news. Go away. Your money no good. I tried to think through the roaring in my mind. I understood her superstition, but also that she couldn't make much money selling vegetables on the street. 
I want two heads. Her eyes narrowed. Chinese cabbage, okay. And that, I pointed to the garlic, three dollars worth. And that, I pointed again to a bundle of spiky fuchsia fruits. All told, I bought Chinese cabbage I didn't know how to cook. Twenty-four heads of garlic and a pound of a fruit I couldn't name. It added up to twelve dollars and left me with two heavy bags to tote away. The white plastic stretched to translucence as I picked them up. The absurdity of it all made me want to drop everything—the groceries, my purse, even my camera—and run through the streets. Instead, I hobbled to the corner and hailed a cab, bent with a grief I could not process and food I could not eat. So great. Okay, were these always your first pages? Did you always start here in this scene of getting the message about the mother? but then also having this old Manchu woman who was selling peppers. They were not always the first pages. And in fact, when I set out to write this book, I thought it was going to be a three-generational drama about the grandmother, the mother, and the daughter. And the daughter would be the only one in America. And the grandmother, through the three of them, they would have left, led lives through a great deal of political and sociological upheaval throughout the world. And at some point, writing scenes in 1905, writing the scenes in 1999, it was the story of the youngest person in the three that stood out for me. And then I started to think about、uh, immigration and displacement. And she wasn't even a photographer in the beginning.、Um, she was just a sort of amorphous person floating around in New York City. And once I started nailing down. Specifics of her、um, identity as an artist and as a person, then more and more the story came out. And for quite a long while, she was a Manchu; she was just Chinese. But then, once I hit upon adding a further layer of alienation, not only from the country of her birth, but also from her original culture, which was not the majority culture in the country of her birth. Then things started to really fall together, and so fairly late in the game, I sat down and I wrote about her getting a phone call telling her of her mother's death. But the immediacy of a phone call was、um, not as dramatic and、yeah. didn't map、um, as well onto the art of photography, which. Where this book is set in 1999, the very first professional digital cameras were just coming out. And I wanted to interplay between the immediacy of digital photography and the fact that in traditional、uh, print photography using chemicals, there necessarily had to be a lag of time between when you took the photo and when you saw what you took. And so, making it a ladder allowed me to extend the amount of time between those two things. Oh, that's wonderful! And having the letter translated to her. Um, yes. And this 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 older woman that's in this scene, she's just so、uh, brusque and confident and herself, and、um, uh, she's the perfect, in my mind, deliverer of bad news. <laughs> she is. <isn't> she? <laughs> I think so too. She's not going to pity you. She's not going to, you、no. know. She just, yeah.、Um, and she even says, "Go away." 
doesn't even want to be paid. <laughs> um, and uh, I feel like I know people like this. Um, wonderful. So it's interesting because I, I think people get ideas for novels and they stick to them too closely and they don't follow where their energy is taking them or what the, where the page is taking them. Um, and then they wind up, it, it takes them so much longer and they wind up with a kind of disjointed novel. I mean, so as you were writing, um, did you write the other points of views and then they just kind of fell away or did you only write the the younger point of view and then that just took over and you're, you're like, gosh, I'd need two other books for the other points of views. I actually um, don't do what I do. This is terrible. I don't pick a point of view and I don't pick a main character. So in the writing of this book, I actually wrote it first and third person mm -hmm. um, in sort of almost an omniscient close third. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote it in first person once I decided that it was about Amy, the photographer. And then at some point I wrote it in second person because I had to be done. Um, I'm kind of like the Rasputin of POV. You can't repent a sin until you've committed it. And <laughs> it was fairly immediate. The second person point of view was wrong. So then I wrote it back into first and then it felt correct. Mm. But I felt that at every point that I changed the point of view, it brought out something more and deeper and different because yeah. it's not just changing from I to she or I to he. There's a, you get to a different level of looking at the characters. Sometimes you get a little closer, sometimes a little further. And I found also that going back and forth between different points of view removed all filtering. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you're able to see outside the character, inside the character, just you're, you're, you're able to get this much wider view of the character to begin to understand her. And it sounded like, as you said, that the, well, that you didn't have a point of view so that the character, um, was kind of thin at first. You needed to, well, all characters are thin at first and we need to develop them mm -hmm. and, and add aspects to them. So how, how many drafts did it take or, or did you really get a sense of, okay, I know who this is. She's a, she's a photographer. I know that she has this Manchu background. Um, did, did that happen in the first draft or does that just take many, many drafts for you? Um, I don't count drafts because I, I don't either actually. <laughs> <laughs> if I did, it'd be frightening, right? Okay. It is. Early drafts, early-ish, early-ish. Yeah. Um, I think everything developed very organically. So yeah. I I didn't know in the beginning that she was a photographer, which is yeah. funny because I was a photographer. Right. Um, I didn't know at the beginning um, anything about her. And I think in the process of writing and editing, what I was doing was every day when I sit down to write, I would read the previous chapter in the beginning, I would actually read the entire thing from the first chapter onward. But of course, at some point that became untenable. And so I would read at least the last chapter or the last two or three chapters. And I couldn't read it without tweaking here and there. So I would do sort of light edits as I went. And so instead of saying, you know, this is a third draft or a seventh draft or what have you, it almost built via accretion. Um, the words and the thoughts. And every time that I went back and looked at it, I might just have like a tiny thought about the way that the light was in the scene or perhaps um, 
something in the background triggered a memory for her. And so then I would add that in and sometimes I would take it out. Um, but it really, I'm, I think it's a long way. I went very circuitously to get where I was going, but I explored all the channels. And if I had a whim, I followed it. And yeah. I would ask these ridiculous questions like, what if her mother was not human? What if her mother was a cricket? Um, how does that change the story? You know, what if she could talk to trees? Uh, none of this made it into the final novel, but they were sort of a part of the thought process that allow me to come down to, no, these things are all wrong and this is what's right. And that's what went into the actual story in the end. Wonderful. I love that sense of play and exploration. A lot of writers just don't let themselves do that. And, and I think it's a really important part of the process. So why did you make her a photographer? I'm sure it has several levels. Was it about, and because you are also a photographer, was it about bringing her closer to you and making her more known to you? Or was it not about that at all? In the beginning, I think it was as a demarcation of time. So the novel takes place in the fall of 1999. And I was, you know, alive and living in New York City at that point. And there was sort of this almost miasma in the air for fear of the end of the century. No one knew what was going to happen with Y2K. Um, and no one ever talks about that anymore. But it was like a very serious fear that people had. And I think, you know, for the character in my novel, for Amy, um, having never encountered death and then dealing with the death of her mother was an ending and a beginning for her both. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to connect those two things, sort of the love that we have for people in our lives, our sense of mortality, and also the way in which we mark time in pretty arbitrary ways. Because the year 2000 in the Gregorian calendar is the year something else in someone else's calendar, yeah. so, you know, 5,600 in someone else's calendar or yeah. 320. Um, and so by bringing in the photography aspect, I think he enriched the story in that um, my editor actually, um, Anne Collins, she's absolutely brilliant. And at one point she said, I love her because she feels like a photographer. When you are reading her internal thoughts, she doesn't feel like something else. And I thought that's really interesting. And it's true. She does. She feels like a photographer. And in making her that and committing to that particular art form, I was able to then, whenever I had a metaphor, I could have sort of an, a narrower tunnel in which to travel through but mm -hmm. the constraints were also very freeing. So if I had a metaphor, I was more likely to make it about light than about something else. And there are several characters in the book whose lives revolve around light. So she is a photographer and light enables her to create her art. And she realizes also that it's actually very magical when you stop to think about it mm -hmm. because when you take a photograph, what you are preserving is light that is bouncing off of your loved one. And you record it, then years later, you are seeing light bounce of their image and travel into your mind. And it's sort of a magical time travel device. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, and I like that. I, I see a lot of writers too, that they choose a particular year to and place to, to put their setting in. And it usually is just kind of uh, random or it is, well, I lived, I mean, like you said, well, I lived in New York at that time. However, you you actually made use of it by using the Y2K phenomenon and using that kind of a straddling that ending in the beginning. So it, it works for the novel and is not just a random choice. It's not just because you had lived there at the time. Um, so, so you developed uh, what the story was giving you. Um, I think it's perfect. Um, and when we look at these pages, so the first line, my mother died of a broken heart or so the letter said, Died of a broken heart is in general kind of a cliche, but for some reason this really hit me emotionally. And I don't, I and I think it might just because because it's her mother, and we don't quite know mothers in terms of of what they love or don't in, in, in terms of their own relationships or or seeing them always as as their own people. Um so for me, some reason it hit me really quite emotionally, even though the language is borrowed. And then also the combination of the letter. And I do think of that grants some distance. And, and then we also wonder, well, who wrote the letter? <laughs> um, and, and where is this message coming from? So there's instant interest in that first line. And then the fact that she's standing at a vegetable stall in Manhattan's Chinatown um, in front of the eight for a dollar garlic and cabbage by the pounds, those small details of the mundane, of the ordinary, even though we're facing this huge news that her mother has just died. So the bringing together of those two things, I think, works so, so well here um, in this opening. Uh, and I mean, had you always there's did you always have it at the vegetable stall that the, or did you just know that you needed this woman to translate the letter? Because there's some, some reason that the vegetable stall and just the ordinary acts of commerce uh, somehow, I don't know, draws us in, destabilizes us, uh, makes it more believable. It, it's doing a whole lot here on the page. <clears throat> well, okay. So the first sentence, um, the died of a broken heart, it is kind of a cliche, you're correct. Yeah. And in fact, the very first time I wrote it, I had not decided what kind of a broken heart her mother had died of. Mm -hmm. Because when we hear about broken hearts, it could be romantic, it could right. be physical, it could be other manifestations of grief or angst. And so I wrote that first, and then I sort of followed it where I led. And in fact, that first sentence used to be two sentences and it never quite sat right with me. And then when I connected them with a comma, all of a sudden, it's almost like I heard a click and things fell into place um, because then in one sentence, I could encapsulate the mystery of her mother dying of an unknown cause. The fact that she is so divorced from her culture that she doesn't even know if that's what the letter said. And as I wrote forward, I actually held space in my mind for the possibility that that's not what the letter said. Um, there is a version of this story, which I never wrote, but which nonetheless exists, where the translator of the vegetables to all lie to her. And the letter actually said something else because she's not necessarily a figure of authority. She's just some random person who happens to share your cultural heritage 
Um, and the placement of the vegetable stall was very intentional. What I wanted to say with that was that she is so divorced from her own culture that she doesn't, in her new life in America, she doesn't know anyone else who speaks Manchu. She doesn't know anyone else from her community. And so it is only this random person that she recognizes by a quirk of, you know, maybe the angle of her jaw, which tells her that maybe she might be able to help. And so she goes and has the letter translated by her. Um, and you are correct that there is, I wanted to contrast this very heavy thing that only happens once in your life with something that happens every day. Yeah. You always hear like people who survive great disasters will say things like, it was such a normal day, right? Yeah. The sky was blue, there wasn't a cloud in the sky, and then all of a sudden, boom, this thing happened and it changed your life forever. And that was the effect that I wanted to go for, which is why further down on the page, I say that the sky was blue and unmarred by clouds. There is this sort of painful clarity of the world continues, even though you feel like your own world has ended, because the one is objective and the other is subjective. Right. And I, I do love how you move through her emotions here. I think it's it's so honest and it's perfect for a first person narrator. So we get I and I think part of that cliche it's 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 you know possibly the language of the old manchu woman also gives to her. Um uh, but it's also the way we understand and speak of heavy things that we can't quite react to or we can't define and so she even says death was an abstract thing for me. I'd never been to a funeral and your prose is so wonderfully careful that I feel like we feel her kind of frozenness in the wake of that news. And then it begins to kind of open up. So she glances at the sun, you just referred to this directly overhead, the sky, a painful blue of unmarred clouds. So there is that touch of emotional phrase of painful blue and how she sees the sky. And then she just looks down at the pavement, at the translator's feet. She sees that the translator's feet, she has cracked heels and torn embroidered sandals. Um, and then we see her lift the camera again. Uh, but there's just a movement into, into the emotion of what she should be feeling. So then she's fumbling. And we also, I think, like her because she's unable to pay and not that I think characters need to be likable, but we're drawn towards her because she's unable to pay the woman. So she buys all this stuff. <laughs> she doesn't even know what it is. And that also shows her separation from her culture, right? Or kind of yes. a desperation, desperation even to be close to the culture, even though she can't name half the things that she's buying. Um, and <laughs> she even calls it absurd. And the, the final line, instead, I hobbled to the corner and hailed a cab bent with the grief I could not process and the food I could not eat. Um, so there we get the fuller grief that she's really, she's hobbled by the bags, but she's also hobbled by the grief. Um, and we also get the word grief that we hadn't had before. It makes me think of Amy Hempel's short story um, in the cemetery where Al Jolson was buried. I don't know if you know that story, but she I doesn't. Don't. It's all about grief, but she doesn't mm -hmm. actually use the word grief until the very end of the story. And when she uses it, it's oh. actually like a truck. 
Um, yeah. So you're doing still something different here, but it's still, I feel like we are just in a lovely way settling into breaking slowly through her shock of, of hearing the news and, and moving into her in a way that I trust. Um, can you talk about how you use emotion elsewhere? I mean, is that just natural to you? I mean, it actually must be because I think we can't write that sort of thing. unless. It's <laughs> but or, or how else you approach um, emotion in your work? Um, I actually, that's a really great question. Thank you for asking it. And I don't have a great answer, I think. <laughs> Um, I mean, these are the sorts of things we can't always define, right? Yeah, I think emotions for me in fiction is a very instinctual thing. Yeah. Um, Both in my consumption of it and in my writing of it. So I will think about, I think our mind all catch on different things. And my mind tends to catch on uncanny things and narratives. Yeah. So I remember years ago watching a documentary about um, children who had been abducted and were being used as slave labor to grow uh, cocoa for chocolate. And after following these children around for a long time, at the very end of the film, the director takes a chocolate bar out of his pocket and gives it to one of the kids and he eats it. And he had no idea right? He had no idea that what he'd been toiling over all these years was turned into this. And the look that spread across his face was just incredible. Mm -hmm. And so I've forgotten everything else about that documentary, but the look on his face is what has stayed with me. And so I think it's these emotional inflection points that really stay in my mind. And so over the course of my own life, you know, hundreds of those little points have added up to make me who I am. Um, I say to my agent that the best way to edit me, sorry, the best way to edit my work is to edit me. So mm. he's always sending me recommendations for books that he thinks I might enjoy reading. We discuss television shows and movies that we both enjoy or hate and we dissect um, what works and what doesn't work in them for us and also for the story in general. And I think from that, I've picked up a sort of emotional sensitivity mm-hmm. to these inflection points. And then I don't realize I'm putting them into the story. But yeah. after I've written it, when I read it, they pop up for me and I go, oh, I'm emotional reading this paragraph. That means something is happening here. But I, I can't try to put emotion. Um, I feel very hand-fisted when I actually try and I just hope they emerges. Yeah, no, I think I do, I do again feel that it, it just enters in very quietly and very confidently. Um, there is um, there is the internal um, sense of her here, but it's not overdone. It's not overwhelming the page. Um, so it comes across really well I also wanted to ask you, and some of this, it's interesting that you said you didn't start with a point of view. And I wonder if part of that is, again, because you're a photographer and because you're also a painter. So we talked a little bit about you approaching this as a photographer, but what about as a painter? How do you think that affects the way you approach prose? Um, It's interesting you should ask that because I'm actually currently working on my second book, which is about a writer 
who sells her soul for a book deal and then <laughs> discovers the souls are real and then has to try to redeem hers. It is, I assure you, not autobiographical, just before anyone asks. Um, and my third book is about a painter. And the concept is that um, all these stories live in a shared fictional universe. And they're me exploring different aspects of myself as different kinds of artists. And also, I want to make a case for women as artists and as thinkers and as people. Because I think even now, um, quite often we're defined as someone's daughter, someone's mother, someone's sister. And I want to say that the things our minds can do are as important as the things our bodies can do. And so my second book, um, I also didn't pick a point of view. And I wrote it in third and then in first and in yeah. third. And now I've decided not to commit. So there is a section that surprisingly, I hope is surprising, which is in second as you go through. And I think it works. Um, and then my third book, which is written from the perspective of a painter, I'm trying to structure it so that the structure of the book mimics a Renaissance painting. With um, So in that one, I'm doing it very deliberately mm. with sort of a underpainting underneath, which sketches out where the bare bones are, and then layer upon layer upon layer, like glazing of the story, so that as you go through it, you get the entire story. But I think perhaps because I'm a photographer, I think about the fact that the layering only works to give you the full painting and the full story because of the light that bounces into the different layers and then comes back out again. Mm -hmm. And it's actually interesting that paintings never actually dry. So we think of oil paintings as, you know, they were done 500 years ago. They're done, done. They're really not. They continue to breathe and there's some element of oil still in them. And there has to be a chemistry of oxygen and other things in the air, which keeps it alive and supple. And so if you put a painting into a vault, um, it wouldn't last very long because it literally needs to breathe. And so I was not, when I first started writing my first book, I wasn't as deliberate. And I didn't have anything written of the second and third book. But once I decided that the key thing in the first book was photography, and it was also about storytelling, I deliberately created a fractal structure so mm -hmm. that it's uh, Manchu stories within Chinese stories, within Western stories, within this story, so that the Odyssey shows up in my first book and lots of Manchu tales do, as well as um, sort of fables and even Bible stories, which I actually heard in childhood growing up in China I thought they were Chinese stories, but it turned out that they were like the Songs of Solomon because these things mm -hmm. do travel. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I think, I think it's impossible for the other arts to not have influenced my first book because while writing this, I was simultaneously having exhibitions of my paintings and you know doing sculpture uh, competitions and so on. But once I have finished a we can call it a full draft, like a, a point at which I could say, this is a book, it makes sense, um, it's cohesive, there are themes. Um, when I read it, it did seem to me as if the book itself 
was revealing parts of self in the way that um, when you develop a photograph in a dark room, some parts of it emerge first and sort of the colors come out differently. So I think had I tried to force that on the book, I don't think I would have been successful. But it's like when we were discussing emotions, who you are comes out in your writing, if you allow it to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And I'm currently working on a book about a painting. So I'm eating all of this up. And putting it in my little, little right. I am not a painter. I actually am a highly, highly poor visual artist. I've attempted. Um, okay, everyone, we're, I'm going to need to let her go. We're going to need to get everyone back to their writing desk. But I just want to thank you so much. Everyone else, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. You, and you can subscribe there for updates. Also, all of our episodes are available on whatever favorite podcast platform that you have so you can search for us there and you can follow rate and review our podcast as well and that makes us look really special and popular okay one last question for you what advice would you give to authors about their own first pages oh that's a tough one Um, one. (laughs) it is a big one I would say follow it where it wants to go yeah yeah and follow what's happening on the page instead of maybe a pre-plan, right? Yeah, yeah. It's more fun that way. And I think you end up with more interesting stories. More cohesion, more, yeah, absolutely. Okay, thank you so much, Angel. This was absolutely wonderful. Um, I just love uh, listening to your thoughtful responses. And I think everyone is also going to really enjoy this and are going to want to grab up your book as well. So thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. 